Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics and Pints at the beautiful Post and Bean Brewing here in my hometown, downtown Peterborough, New Hampshire. Super excited to be here today with an excellent candidate for president. It's going to be a crowded field. Well, it's already getting really crowded, but I'm pleased to sit down today with Hawaii Congresswoman and candidate for president Tulsi Gabbard. Tulsi, how's so it going? Much. Aloha. It's great to be here with both of you. Aloha. Thanks for having me on your show. Yeah, thanks for sitting down Aloha. with us. So how's your trip to New Hampshire going so far? It's great. It's great. Every trip that, uh, that we've had here, uh, it's been a phenomenal experience of being able to go out and uh, visit people where they are in different communities across the state and be able to hear from them directly about the challenges um, that keep them up at night, that, that they're really concerned about, and to be able to share a little bit about myself and why I'm running for president and asking for the opportunity to serve them. Yeah, absolutely. And I know we did a uh, great event last night in Jaffrey. It was good. Had yeah, a good thank you for, for uh, helping to gather that together and absolutely. for the introduction. Yeah, it was great. And one of the things you mentioned last night was people are wondering, you know, Tulsi, why are you making foreign policy yeah. the center of your campaign? You know, what's, what's the end game there? What's the goal? And you, you know, made the great point that, well, foreign policy is actually connected to everything and it has, it has a, an impact on everything that happens in our country and with our citizens. So yeah. I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. And yeah, well, as you know, Eric, um, I'm a soldier. I still serve in the Army National Guard today and uh, I've been serving for almost 15 years. I've deployed twice to the Middle East uh, throughout that time and have uh, seen and experienced firsthand the cost of war uh, and who pays the price. Um, I, in Congress, have served now for over six years on the Armed Services and Foreign Affairs Committees um, and seen how broken and counterproductive our foreign policy is, how it is not serving the interests of the American people or our country, and how it is, uh, unfortunately, with more and more of these wasteful regime change wars, increasing suffering for the people in the countries where we wage these wars. So to your point, our foreign policy is not about something that is just uh, happening on the other side of the world. It is not just one issue amongst many. Uh, I talk about the cost of war everywhere I go because it is central to every other uh, domestic issue that we're facing. So long as we continue to spend trillions of dollars on these wasteful wars, on this nuclear arms race, those are dollars that we are not spending on making sure that we have health care for all. Yeah, it's just seemingly, it's a black hole of waste. Seemingly. Waste, it is a black hole of waste that is undermining uh, our ability to invest in our people and serve their needs. Mm -hmm. uh, it is a, uh, I think it's something far worse than that though, because it is actually increasing, increasing suffering uh, and undermining our national security in the process. And that's one of the things I like about your platform and your whole willingness to kind of call the people out who profit off war, because why, why are we? over there in the Middle East, why are we still bogged down in these wars of cho choice, you know, these, these misguided adventures overseas? And I've really boiled it down to there are a few people who profit off war, mm -hmm. and they really don't care about the fallout, they don't care about the people they send over there. They, a lot of them don't have any skin in the game, mm -hmm. and they're perfectly content to send someone else's kids to go fight a war where they're gonna make a lot of money off of it, and then it will be on to the next thing. And, and what I find, so unfortunate and offensive is that these these people, whether they are self-serving politicians or the greedy corporate interests or the military-industrial complex that benefits 
off of continuing to wage these wasteful wars is that they are so often sold to the American people under the guise of humanitarianism. Right. That, well, we've got to go and topple each of these different dictators that we don't like in order to, to help the people there without acknowledging the truth about how every time we do this, it actually increases the suffering of the people in those countries. And it's also so hypocritical because these are the very same people who are uh, cozying up to countries like Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. who are, as we speak, waging a genocidal war in Yemen uh, yeah. with the United States support, unauthorized by Congress, killing tens of thousands of Yemeni people. Right. And, uh, creating a situation where millions more are starving and sick and suffering because of our policy, because of this so-called alliance with Saudi Arabia that not only does not serve our interests, does not serve the interests of the people in, in Yemen, for example, it actually undermines our national security because of Saudi Arabia's both direct and indirect support for terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda, the very same group that attacked us on 9-11. And what kind of response, I'm sure you've had these foreign policy dis discussions with people like uh, Richard Haas or, I don't know, maybe Donald Trump when you met with him. I'm, I'm maybe, maybe you wanted to share some yeah, of your foreign so policy. I, uh, Shortly after the November 2016 election, I uh, was invited to go and, and have a conversation with then President-elect Donald Trump specifically about foreign policy, specifically about uh, the regime change war uh, in Syria and how to tackle the threat of terrorism coming from groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Uh, I took the opportunity to have a conversation uh, with the next occupant of the White House in the hopes that maybe, perhaps, um, I could provide that, uh, that compelling voice that he could hear from, uh, even as I was concerned and knew that there were many neocon war hawks who were seeking uh, to influence yeah. Maybe perhaps don't hire John Bolton to be NSA exactly. advisor. Exactly. What does he do? You know, he campaigned on that. He, he, he talked out of both sides of his mouth. You know, he campaigned, I'm against all this stuff. We're not going to do the stupid wars like Iraq. What does he do? He brings John Bolton in. Yeah. And now Elliot Abrams ratcheting all that up with Venezuela. Right. This, is why, this is why I'm running for president. Because um, our country loses and our foreign policy continues to be destructive when we have people who go into the White House to serve as president, to fulfill that most important responsibility as commander in chief, when they don't know what they're doing. And so what they end up doing is listening to the foreign policy establishment. Uh, they end up listening to uh, the military industrial complex or military leaders um, and not having the kind of foresight and judgment and really qualifications to make those decisions that best serve the interests of the American people, that best serve our country, that keep us safe and secure and further the cause of peace. So if you are elected, what would you do to go against that military industrial complex? Because it is such a powerful entity and it's been, I mean, Eisenhower is really one of the first to, to warn us against that in his farewell address. So how would you how would you, you know, combat, yeah. combat I mean, look, such it, a vast... It requires uh, strong leadership, and that's the leadership that I seek to bring. Um, I, know, I know who I am uh, and who I serve. Uh, it is not the military-industrial complex. It is not political parties or self-serving politicians in Washington. It is the American people. It is the people of this country uh, that, I am, uh, that I am asking to serve. Um, keeping this at the forefront and understanding that um, 
the people are the ones who have the power to make this kind of change in this country. Washington would, would have us believe uh, that it can't be done without the most powerful or the most influential in Washington. But we right. see time after time examples throughout history how we, the people, have overcome very difficult odds to make the kind of change we need to see. And right now is one of those moments where we are seeing people across party lines in this country saying enough is enough. No more of these wasteful, uh, destructive regime change wars. We need to end this nuclear arms race that is making our country and the world less safe. And, and that's really undermining our ability to take care of our people. Yeah, and, and obviously another uh, pain point that will give a lot of politicians and people running for president uh, heartburn is Israel-Palestine. And this, we're hearing little bits and pieces coming out about the forthcoming peace deal that Kushner's been working on, which, if which anyone we don't know, really know much about. Well, we don't know a lot about, and if anyone knows Kushner's background, Charles Kushner, his father, and who they're connected to, and, and I just don't think you have an honest broker in that deal. So if you were president... What kind of people would you want around you to pursue peace between Israel and Palestine and um, settlements? Settlements are a big, a big part of that. And Netanyahu's not budging on that. The far right in Israel, the Likud, they're not going to budge on that at all. So I know there's always that. So um, how would you approach that and deal with that? Uh, I think it, it's uh, making sure that we are, are doing what we can to bring those honest brokers to the conversation. Uh, where ultimately is really only the Israeli people and the Palestinian people who will be able to uh, find that path forward towards peace and, and what is right, what is right for them for peace and security and a future um, that will allow them to thrive. Uh, this is the saddest thing is that both with uh, the Trump administration uh, and uh, Bibi Netanyahu in Israel, we are seeing decisions being made that are. Uh, making it harder and harder for that path to peace to be a possibility. Exactly. A completely yeah. unnecessary, counterproductive, and short-sighted announcement by President Trump that was really put forward blatantly uh, for political benefit yeah, well, for with the Israeli elections election. coming up. Yeah, the exactly. elections coming up. So exactly. That's what I'm saying. So that, that, that is very difficult, and it just seems almost an impossible task to... to it's tough. Fine, fine. It, there, there's it's no not question. Impossible, though, it's right? not impossible. It's not impossible. It's not impossible. Uh, it's hard. It's complex. There are a lot of different issues that need to be addressed. Um, I think it's important for the United States to continue to help further and support that pa that that peaceful path towards uh, resolution uh, in every way that we can. Yeah, the, uh, the mainstream media has made a, a, a big to-do about your meeting with Assad, and uh, you've said that um, you will have the courage to meet with both friends and adversaries in the pursuit of peace and national security. And um, I think that that's great. I mean, le leaders in our country have met with people that are maybe less than desirable for our country, but that's, you know, the alternative is, is probably a lot worse. The alternative is war. Is bombs. That's the reality. Uh, you know, there, there are often tough issues that we need to work out. Uh, but if we, if we, again, look through history at times where we have been able to avert war, it has been because of leaders who have had the courage to have those tough conversations with adversaries or with yeah. potential adversaries. I mean, even Khrushchev and Kennedy exactly. just sending a few letters averted nuclear winter. Exactly. And that wasn't a pot. Kennedy had all the hawks against him, the Joint yeah. Chiefs. None of them wanted to work with Khrushchev. Khrushchev was dealing with who he had in the Soviet Union. So yeah. there's precedent. And... 
diplomacy is, we go outside of diplomacy and, you know, chain reaction. It is. That, that's, that's, the, um, that's the frustrating thing about a lot of the criticism that's coming uh, my way for advocating for uh, meeting with people who we right. may not like or who we may not agree with or who may be potential adversaries, right. uh, but, but the fact remains that you don't make peace if you only hang out with your friends and talk to your friends. That is, that is the literal definition of peace, is being able to meet with uh, and find that, that path forward uh, with those who may be adversaries. That is, that is exactly what I find to be such a breath of fresh air about your platform, about you, about your campaign, and um, we know that you getting on the debate stage is going to be instrumental in promoting that more and getting that out there. So um, what kind of strategies are you employing right now to uh, make it onto that stage in June? Uh, we have issued a call to action to uh, folks all across the country, yes, people who are supporting our campaign, but really to everyone who wants to see uh, a strong debate on these issues of critical importance, uh, to bring our voices to that national conversation as the American people are faced with this very important decision about who should best serve as Commander-in-Chief. Uh, so we're asking folks make a dollar contribution, five bucks, 10 bucks, whatever you can, so that we can hit that threshold and make sure that uh, our spot on that debate stage is secure and we can bring up these issues about how the cost of war is at the center of every other issue and challenge that we're facing in this country. Absolutely. Um, shifting gears a little away from foreign policy, um, I think you mentioned in the CNN town hall uh, about you know, being a religious minority and the way religion is used in politics. Do you think that there's a shift away from people worrying so much about what religious background their candidate has? Um, maybe they choose, and I like what you say, people who choose to worship or people who choose not to worship. And I think it's refreshing to hear that because so many politicians have run using their religion as a, as a political tool. And you obviously believe what you believe. And, and that's, it seems like it's kind of a person, it's really a personal thing. And it is. it's, you know, it is, and, and it's, it's personal on many levels. My own, my own spiritual practice is something that's deeply personal to me, uh, but our country and our, our um, vision that our founders had for us in freedom of religion uh, is, is essential. Uh, you know, as a soldier, I volunteered to put my life on the line for our country uh, and to uphold these principles and freedoms that are enshrined in our Constitution. Uh, so. Uh, when we see people who are trying to weaponize one's religion uh, for their own political gain, this goes against that very vision that our founders had for us. And it's why I stand and speak out so strongly uh, against that kind of religious bigotry, against uh, those who are trying to foment suspicion or fear or trying to uh, treat others as others, as something that you should be concerned about or fearful of or suspicious of. Uh, we should all stand for this religious freedom. Again, as you said, regardless of how we choose to worship or if you choose not to worship right. at all, this is, this is integral to our values in this country. And unless we all take a stand and condemn those who weaponize uh, one's religion for their own selfish gain, whatever that may be, unless we take that stand we are unfortunately going to continue to see um, this kind of hateful, bigoted rhetoric continue and also see how unfortunately where that leads uh, to violence as we have seen most recently in Christchurch, 
and the massacre, the massacre uh, in the mosque. Uh, yeah, New Zealand. In New Zealand, right. we've seen it, um, you know, on, on, uh, in Pittsburgh, uh, where people were killed in the synagogue as they were worshiping. We've seen it against Hindus. We've seen it against Christians. We've seen this happening far too often. We've got we've to deal with the reason why this is happening and stand strong together against it. Yeah, and um, a lot of my friends are, you know, big gun guys, big Second Amendment guys, um, libertarian. New Hampshire is a pretty libertarian yeah. state, as you know, and um, a lot of people were curious about your stance on the Second Amendment and, you know, kind of what a Tulsi Gabbard presidency would look like with regards to our Second Amendment. Yeah. Well, just like we stand for our First Amendment and freedom of speech, uh, we also stand for our Second Amendment uh, and the right for every American uh, to bear arms. Uh, saying that, we have to have some uh, common sense safety regulations in place uh, to make it so that those who seek to do harm or may do harm to others uh, with those guns are, are not allowed to carry them. Uh, we just passed in Congress a bill uh, that would provide for universal background checks. To me, that is a great example of a sensible gun safety law that we should enact uh, that will do a lot towards, towards accomplishing that. Absolutely. Uh, and I had another point I wanted to bring up. You did oppose the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Yeah. I think you were involved in a, in a big rally with Senator Bernie Sanders, and you said that would, uh, agreement would cost a lot of jobs here in the U.S. Yeah. What are some policies and ideas you have about strengthening our economy and, and, and bringing more jobs back? You know, this is, this is really about shifting uh, the whole way that we look at economic policy and tax policy and trade policy. And instead of thinking about um, as has been for too long, how will you know, the special interests and the big corporations and the multinational corporations benefit from these policies? We actually need to look at how will the American people benefit from these policies? Uh, how will we make sure that these policies are not um, causing harm to our environment, that we're not inviting industries in who will uh, take actions that will be harmful to air and, and clean water and, and these things that are basic uh, to all of us. Uh, and the third thing is, and this was one of the most egregious parts of the Trans-Pacific Partnership deal, uh, was that it essentially gave up our sovereignty to an independent international panel of these corporations that would have the power to make a decision and enforce that decision on our country, potentially overriding or overruling laws that we pass. Uh, so the, the very idea of giving up that sovereignty is something that goes against who we are as a country uh, and our elected form of governance. So I, I spoke out strongly against that trade deal. Um, I think we, we need to pursue trade deals, again, that actually work for our people, not against us and for the special interests. And it, it seems, uh, you know, going back to W. Bush and then through Obama's two terms, there's a, a consensus, on, consensus on people who are in the intelligence community who have blown the whistle on violations. And uh, one com guy comes to mind, my friend John Kiriakou, who uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with his case, but uh, John Kiriakou was in the CIA from uh, 1990 to 04, and he blew the whistle on waterboarding mm. and torture. And he was prosecuted and he went to federal prison for 30 months. And John Brennan played a pretty big role. And it was under Obama, actually, where he was, this all, the hammer fell under Obama. Mm -hmm. You would think it would have been under Bush, but Bush didn't go after him. So 
you know, we got Chelsea Manning uh, with, the, with that. So kind of would like to know your thought on whistleblowers and people who want to shed some light on the misdeeds and misdoings of people in government, whether it's in the intelligence agencies and other aspects. Yeah. Um, gosh, you know, I think there's, there are, uh, you've mentioned some of the more recent contemporary examples. Um, you know, I think the, the publishing of the Pentagon Papers during Vietnam yeah. is another example. And as, as we look at these, I think it's important to look at them within that broader context of how every time uh, people were threatened mm -hmm. uh, before uh, blowing the whistle or, or even prosecuted after, um, there has always been this kind of blanket claim, well, how dare you um, threaten our national security? But in fact, what they're doing is um, shining a light on how uh, information has often been classified not because it serves our national security interests, but because uh, there are things that the government doesn't want people to know uh, for one reason or another. Uh, and they're shining a light in many cases on how, uh, for example, our government agencies have been overreaching and frankly violating our Fourth Amendment rights, uh, our civil liberties and privacy. The problem with so many of the conversations around this in Washington is people would try to have uh, the American people believe that we must choose between national security and keeping the American people safe or having our civil liberties and privacy upheld. It's a false choice uh, and, and it's a disservice to the American people to make them believe that they have to choose between the two. It's our responsibility as leaders to make sure that we have the tools we need to actually keep our country safe while also upholding those Fourth Amendment rights that are granted to us uh, to protect our civil liberties. Right. Yeah, now Chelsea Manning has been, uh, I think, arrested and, and placed back in, in confinement or back in, in jail right. for not giving up the source. So, it, yeah, there's got to be some kind of protection or, or, or something yeah. put in place so that people won't be afraid to speak out again. Yeah. Again, I think this, this speaks to leadership. Right? It speaks to having the right kind of leadership in this country um, that is focused on upholding our constitutional rights and upholding um, what is in the best interest of the people and, and our country first and foremost. Absolutely. Well, we're wrapping it up here. Um, last thing here, Tulsi, why are you running for president and why should people support you? Um, as a soldier and, and one who knows and understands the cost of war, uh, I'm qualified to serve as Commander-in-Chief to bring about an end to these wasteful regime change wars, bring about an end to this new Cold War and nuclear arms race so that we can take the trillions of dollars that we're spending on these wars and invest them in serving the urgent needs of every American across this country and things like health care, uh, education, affordable housing, infrastructure, clean water, things that that are impacting every one of our lives. Uh, I will bring those values and principles that are at the heart of every service member of putting service above self to the White House and restore uh, the principles of integrity and character um, and honor back to the presidency. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for taking the time with us. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks, Tulsi. Thank you, Congresswoman. Aloha. All right. Thank you, folks, for watching. It's been another great chat on politics and pints. Please click subscribe, like this, share it, tell your friends. Thank you very much. Cheers. 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 <laughs>